Hey everyone, welcome back to SaaS Ops Leaders with David Politis. This week, I'm joined by Justin Dean, the CIO and CTO at Weedmaps. Justin is our first guest on this podcast who's both CIO and CTO. We talked about his career path and how he got to this point. We also talked about the skills he's looking for in candidates as he grows his team and how he's built credibility across his organizations that he's worked in through being authentic. All of that and much more coming up now. Hey, Justin, thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to be here and talk to you. Um, let's get started. Can you just quickly introduce yourself and, and your role at Weedmap? And then would love to hear about how you got into IT and, and technology in general. So my name is Justin Dean. Um, I'm the uh, CTO and CIO here at Weedmaps. Um, I've been with the company for three years now, uh, almost exactly. Being in the cannabis industry, it's it feels a little bit more like 30 years, <laughs> how fast <laughs> everything's going. But yeah, I can give you a little uh, rundown about my background and, and sort of like how I came to be, I guess. Um, yeah, I'd love that. I'd love that. Yeah, sure. So I started out in the mid-90s um, in the United States Marine Corps, uh, out of all places. And I uh, didn't have a technical background going in, but what I what I did do was I was clever enough to ask them what makes the most money when I get out <laughs> and, so, and uh, they, they didn't have like a granular options so I just went into communications and so I, I uh, landed in my first real job after all the basic training and all that was basically a sysadmin um, for the most part uh, it was it was uh, kind of an earlier role in the Marine Corps at that time mid-90s the laptops were green and 100 pounds and metal and ran some version of Unix or <laughs> Solaris. And, and so it was, I spent four years basically uh, traipsing around the globe, getting sent into, you know, different countries and, and uh, different bases, building you know, infrastructure and setting up messaging. The, the key of it was mostly secure messaging. So think about like, you know, um, having early versions of email on the base or the camp and then having the crypto devices to make that super secure. So you could do like, you know, coordinates, you know, between the bosses and things like that. You know, ultimately what it, what it sort of like got me ready for was being in technology and in, in corporate America, because, you know, it, it was all about sort of speed and nimbleness, being, being able to get deployed on a, at a moment's notice anywhere. And, you know, Hey, Justin, bring all your stuff that you need, right. Big green boxes of switch <laughs> routers and hubs and all that kind of stuff and, and power as well. <laughs> I left the uh, Marine Corps, went to a company called National Realty Trust, probably the largest company that no one's ever heard of. Basically it was a large real estate holding type of a company. Uh, they were multi-billion dollars at that time and, and owned just about every real estate company you could think of. Century 21, Coldwell Banker, ERA, um, Fred Sands. And so the, the game plan of the company was they would continue to acquire more real estate offices. And so me being in the infrastructure world, um, sort of our managing our data centers and all of our corporate stuff and uh, meaning, you know, email and all that other kind of stuff and our, our corporate systems. So think about like to close a real estate transaction, all the software required to make that happen if you're a real estate agent. So anyways, uh, we were scaling like crazy. So we would, you know, I'd get a call and sort of like, hey, we just bought all of Fred Sands in SoCal. So 150 offices, they need, you know, figure out how to like assimilate them into our infrastructure. Uh, in the, the fastest and uh, most cost-effective way <laughs> possible, and so we did. A, I did a lot of that, um, and and along that journey, 
that that really got me into the networking space. And I took that to the nth degree. My main role there was really building out the network infrastructure. So I think all the, the routers and switches and all that kind of stuff in a big WAN to connect everything. And at that era, that stuff was expensive and, and pretty complex. And so I went down the Cisco CCIE path and, and went and got certified in that. And it was right around the, the dot-com bust. So I, I got my CCIE and thought, you know, I'm gonna I'm on top of the world. It's, it's only going up from here. And then a couple months later, the whole the whole bottom fell out of the internet and the dot-com bust and everything. But and nonetheless, it was it was a, a great experience being able to build you know, a network of, you know, multi-thousands of, of nodes on it at the time was was pretty, pretty complex and pretty interesting. I went to Simpra Energy after that, and I took all of sort of like the book knowledge of, of some of this stuff, and they had every piece of technology you could imagine in, the, in their data centers. You know, they owned the fiber underneath the railroad tracks, right? So we had to terminate the fiber and just do everything you, you would imagine. And uh, a large utility company having to do when it comes to the compute needs. So I spent some time there basically testing all of my skills because it felt like everything was breaking every day. <laughs> you know, it, it, even things like, how does this protocol talk to this mainframe again? And and <laughs> so I spent a fair, fair amount of time there, then went to a company called B3 Corp. And B3 Corp, uh, we were an active uh, ASP, application service provider. And so that was basically SaaS before SaaS came along. I like to say that we were basically the Shopify type of, of service at that time for uh, Wells Fargo and Bank of America merchants. So we did all of the getting the e-com and, and websites and everything that it requires, a credit card processing and all that for Bank of America and Wells Fargo merchants to get online. And it was the era in which, you know, quote unquote online for a lot of first time shops, but a lot of a lot of big ones. Um, as well, even even things like paying your taxes online was we were setting up. You know, you we were working with uh, local tax shops to to get that online. I was there for maybe seven or eight years, running the team there, and as we had two different lines of business, we, so we were doing the the e-commerce side of it, and then the the executives in the in the company came out of the music industry. So half of the company, we we also provided like private label e-commerce type services for all of the different big uh, music labels like you know Warner, Electra and all of them. Most notable to me was it was the time during remember Napster and all the Napster shutdown and the drama around that and then came uh DRM. So DRM was the latest and greatest at that time because the record record industry needed to make, you know, royalties. Uh, MP3 players were big. Anyways, so we had built out a full DRM service to essentially sell all of the you know Warner Music and everyone else's content online, right? And right right about the time we got to the point where it was getting built, Apple came along and introduced the iPod, <laughs> and so <laughs> the business evaporated overnight, to say the least. Uh, turns out people don't love DRM. <laughs> I left there and went to a company called Shopzilla that became Connexity, which now is uh, just merged with a SPAC and IPO'd as uh, Taboola. I spent a fair amount of time there, almost nine years, running the infrastructure and technology platform area within the company. I would say, you know, as far as like a a role, this was probably the most uh, transformational and pivotal for me personally of kind of, I, I would say it sort of helped shape who I am as a technologist, a technology leader. The company at large was, it was just a really 
high performing tech shop. And like in the, in the classic sense, right? I mean, we were building all of our own software, um, including things like building our search engine, right? It was before there was any open source or any cloud services available. So, you know, we were, we were taking inventory in the, in the, in the form of hundreds of thousands of like merchant feeds and think about a merchant feed of walmart.com or etsy.com and pushing all of their products and prices and description and all the metadata around it. And then we would try to use whatever latest and greatest sort of data sciences technologies at the time. It was a lot of like Hadoop and HBase and whatnot to then take those unstructured, really bad data feeds and make a universal catalog that made sense where things lined up, right? This is a blue Graco four-wheel drive stroller is the same as this other one that this other merchant has in this other feed, right? And then, then we would put that in our search engine and then we essentially would, would make money by being the first, you know, first couple results on Google, whether it's SEO or SEM and getting a click. And we, we were, it was a comparison shopping engine, right? So you remember the days where you typed in Krupp's coffee pot, and then you got kind of an ugly page that had a list of Krupp's Potty Pots with, with a link for you to go somewhere else and buy it. And so, you know, that was, it was basically high performance, high scale arbitrage. And so we used a lot of, you know, different data tech to ensure that that was profitable. And, um, but ultimately what it did to the culture and, and me personally was working in a place where the thing that you're actually touching and the technology that you're building and you can see it in a minute by minute real time scorecard, which is clicks per minute, redirects per minute that tied ex directly to our revenue. 100% of the revenue came from those clicks. And we watched the things that we build change those clicks, click patterns. Anything and everything had, had effect. I mean, there was times when we were like going really, really, really low level, you know, kernel tuning and whatnot, um, getting high, high performance on displaying a page or painting the page above the fold a little bit faster. It was definitely a milliseconds matter type of a shop. And Google every once in a while would change algorithms around and all of our revenue would just disappear in front of our face. So we had to get in war rooms and figure out, and, you know, what are we going to do and, and act really quickly. So several years of operating in, in that environment, I think really shaped me, the speed in which I try to operate at and try to expect and as well as just, you know, speed and agility are two running themes for me that, you know, you've got to move quick and you have to make decisions, you know, really quick in the face of, you know, a landscape that's changing. Definitely, definitely relevant now uh, being in the middle of the cannabis industry, <laughs> to say the least. So I left, uh, left Shopzilla and I went to Ticketmaster. Um, I spent four years there on a huge, I would call it sort of like a transformation, a company level digital transformation of sorts. Basically, the, the mission is we're a ticketing company and we need to be a software company. <laughs> Ticketmaster being 42 years old at the time I was there, you know, it had a lot, a lot, a lot of complexity, layer and layer and layer of systems. And, you know, the main ticketing engine was still uh, PDP-11 mainframe with, you know, 82,000 layers of, of abstractions on top of it over the years in a really complex business suite and B2B like software offering and as well as a, as a consumer marketplace. The competition was younger and was born at technology first. Competition was putting out releases nonstop and creating you know, better offerings for the consumers and clients. The main thing was the executive team there, they had confidence 
And they had the determination to actually make that change, right? And, and all the work required to, you know, up-leveling and, and transforming into anything requires a significant amount of mind share and horsepower as a company, right? So, so that was good, you know, the, to have the full support of the management team. And essentially what we did was we ended up doing a cloud-native transformation. And, and really what that meant was we had all these big data centers owned and operated, you know, epic amount of hardware, and then we had a lot of emerging cloud presence. So we were basically double paying for everything. You know, it was a classic thing where everyone, you shadow IT, everyone has credit cards, and all of a sudden there's millions of dollars of bills in the cloud, as well as, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of stuff you have to buy internally as well. Anyways, we made the decision to go full cloud. And really, we made that decision primarily as the catalyst for the transformation. The method in which we went cloud was specifically cloud native, and it was containerizing everything, putting it into Docker, putting it in a CI/CD pipeline, ensure that you have an automated deployment stack that can live in the cloud by itself, self-healing, and you know, talk to all the services that you need to talk to, which is a pretty tall order if you're taking an app that's not built for that. You know, the, the interesting thing here was we had better luck and more success by making the goal, get your apps working in this, you know, more modern manner inside of the cloud than just mandating people move their software or increasing the maturity of a team. You know, you think about like Ticketmaster, like one of the core issues that we had a lot of was just massive scale of transactions hitting, right? Like it's no secret that the arbitrage opportunity on tickets is, is great, to say the least. There's a lot of folks out there making a lot of money by building automated bot armies to go and get the hot tickets, right? If Adele's going to sell something, guaranteed they're going to be $3,000 on the secondary market, you know, 150 bucks on Ticketmaster. So what that created was, a, you know, world's largest sort of DDoS hitting the site every day. Basically, anytime tickets went on sale for anything that was hot, and so there was a lot of focus on building software that is stable and performant that also has to handle high concurrency, right? Which equals all roads equal complex, <laughs> to say the least. And so a lot of the software would crash. And then the, the, the solving those crashes was super complex, mo mostly because, you know, somewhere in the stack was something really old and, and slightly brittle that did something really important. And, and it was always hard to go and rebuild those core components of a system. You know, a lot of times they were built over 10 years ago and they had a lot of logic, you know, embedded in them that would require a full revamp. And so that essentially led to software that wasn't able to handle the load as well as it should. Right. And so anyways, to solve that pain point, right, it was like, OK, well, let's go down the cloud native path. It's a chance to freshen up all of the software as well as the practices around it, get rid of anything manual, right? And, and just up-level the capabilities of the team and the software itself. And so ultimately that became the path of getting hundreds of teams to self-up-level on, on all fronts. And along the way, and we, we could talk about it uh, later if it's interesting to you, um, but I'm, I'm a little bit of a nerd when it comes to maturity models. And so along the way, what we found was it was really complicated to get that many people to speak the same language. How good is your software? Like, that's kind of a ridiculous question to ask a, team, a software development team, right? Because normally they're going to believe that it's the best that they can do with what they have, right? 
it's not really a useful question or, or the answer is not really useful. And you certainly can't compare it amongst other teams. And so we built a maturity model, tech maturity model, that basically was a, you know, a questionnaire that quantified a bunch of different domains, how well you build, test, operate, deploy, optimize your software, and then put that in numbers and graphs and bucket it up and whatnot. What this allowed us to do was take a quick look at the entire portfolio and look at key areas that made sense for that particular product. And meaning something like if you have a really low operate score, you know, maybe 20 or 30 like questions in the operate bucket, things like, you know, do you have synthetic monitoring on all critical flows, right? Would be one of them, right? And and so you could quickly understand if your, if your software is going up and down, having those kinds of problems, stability problem, and you have a low score in operate, it quantifies it enough to where now you can have a technical debt conversation with the business at large, right? And all the product folks, and then you can make a decision, is it the right time to invest in this particular area versus chasing features? I mentioned that because we open sourced it and then we use that at Readmaps as well. I think it's extremely useful for just getting shared awareness on what is the real state of the state when it comes to you know, technical capabilities and technical debt. And so, you know, I, I, I spent, you know, four years at Ticketmaster on this uh, transformational journey. And I, I feel like that set me up very well for the Weed Maps opportunity. You know, so I, I got to Weed Maps and it was a 10-year-old tech shop and had really good product market fit. Consumers loved it. Very high intent consumers with, you know, revenue growth. It was, you know, somewhere around 40% or, or better year over year growth. The company at large was doing well. And very well positioned for where cannabis, uh, you know, has been going and, and is going um, as it the normalization and, and legalization um, continues to blossom. And so the real mission was take the company and set it up in terms of scaling. So in terms of horsepower and people, as well as, you know, organizational design and, and making sure that we're safe and sanely scaling and as well as add maturity to all of our different functional areas, everything from engineering, product, design, quality, infra, SREs, you know, data, the, the, the typical sort of like functions, but each of those scale them out, you know, add you know, leadership layers, add staffing, and then add operational maturity you know, to run the function in prep for you know, going into that public company life where things need to be a lot more rigorous, as well as predictable and whatnot. And so, you know, I've been there for three years now, and that's essentially been the mission. And we're continuing to scale our portfolio. We're scaling basically on all fronts, everything from processes to people to our products at large, and ultimately traction and revenue. That leads me to where I'm at now. I'm CTO, CIO. My primary role is product development and overseeing the overarching technology organization. I spend most of my time and energy focused on delivering product to market to help power and push forward the cannabis industry at large. You know, that's everything from our marketplace, our consumer facing marketplace to our B2B SaaS WM business offering. That's awesome. I have a lot of questions. The first is, and, and I was talking to you before about this, like CIO, CTO, you're the first person actually that I've interviewed for the podcast that, that has that title and straddles those two roles. From listening to your background, you definitely came up in a pure play type of IT networking background. And then 
as you transition, it sounds like in Shopzilla and then and then Ticketmaster and now very clearly at Weed Maps into this role that is dual purpose. Can you talk a little bit of how you think about that and how you think about the internal technology versus the outward facing kind of product? And do you treat them the same way? Do you have the same methodologies? It's a pretty cool career path, honestly. And I, I'm just curious how you think about that. Thanks. I definitely feel like my career path and trajectory is, has been a little unstandard, uh, to say the least. You know, it, it went from that early, really technical, hands-on building and architecting out really high-scale, web-scale type stuff. That's sort of where I found my, my niche. And, you know, I think the, the transition there started probably around the Shopzilla time because it, it forced me to really, really pay attention to the business and what we were building, not just the technology. And maybe, maybe coming out of the, the previous role that I was in at the, the company prior to Shopzilla, where the company and the business started to lose product market fit, let's call it. And so I think it, it resonated with me a lot, you know, at, at Shopzilla. And when the technology that you're, you're deploying, you know, significantly changes the revenue like in, in our paychecks, you know, there's something that I think that happens where you really start to fuse those circuits together in your brain where, you know, it's not just tech for tech's sake. It's we're building this to get traction or adoption or to solve a problem you know, it, it, it's very helpful to pay attention to that problem and make sure you're actually building the right thing, right? And, and then I think, you know, that that's sort of like, you know, definitely starts getting me at least thinking down the, the CTO path where it's, you know, if we're, if we're going to be building, you know, things for clients and consumers, you really have to be in the, in the heart and the mind of the client and consumer to make sure that, you know, you're building the right stuff, right? So I think, you know, that time there at Shopzilla really helped kind of crystallized that for me and put me down that path. And then the time at Ticketmaster it was no different. You know, Ticketmaster, I would say was, you know, obviously really huge business. So it, it put me in that like Venn diagram of CIO, CTO thinking combined with business thinking and making sure that, you know, all of the money is making sense as well. Um, just with the, the, the size of operation, the size of budgets, the margins there, it, you know, it was, it was something we had to pay a lot of attention to. So I think that that helped me, you know, personally come out of that with a pretty large awareness of, you know, not only where my interests lie, but what it really takes to build successful technology, right? Like things that, you know, either have a purpose or have traction or, or, or they're going to get the use because you're built, you built the right thing. And so then taking that and then coming into weed maps with it, you know, being able to, you know, take something from the ground up, I'm using air quotes there, because it's not exactly the ground up, the company was 10 years old. But I, when, I, when I started, we were essentially a one products company, weedmaps.com. And we now have 19 product domains. And a domain is, you know, an area within the business that we staff up and has leadership and all that other kind of stuff. So there could be multiple, you know, products or variants or, you know, internal products as well that, that roll up into those. But, you know, we have a pretty vast portfolio that we've built in a really short amount of time, if you think about it, just in, this, in the course of three years going from, you know, a consumer marketplace or, and website to now having a full sort of B2B end-to-end SaaS offering for, you know, dispensary operators, delivery operators, and, and brands. 
you know, as well as all the advertising products and, and MarTech type products that we have as well. That's a lot of figuring out to do. I'm using air quotes again, right? And, and by figuring out, you know, ensuring that, you know, you're keeping your finger on the pulse of, of your clients as well as your consumers for us, because we have a, a marketplace, right? So we're, and, and really being deliberate about doing that. Everything from the research, from UX, UI, and just making sure that we're, you know, paying attention to what's working and what's not working. There's playbooks for this everywhere, right? You know, it's kind of like doing our research to, you know, ensure that we're backing up our business, you know, hypothesis with actual data to ensure that we know, you know, what, what should we build in what market for who and answering those types of questions, right? And then feeding that into our product development process to where we're determine, okay, we're going to place a few bets and then making sure that we, you know, as we craft out an MVP to go build something or put it in market and, and see if it's going to work, right? Trying to have the best chance up front to hitting the hitting the needs, which is, I would like to believe that internal tech goes through a similar type of process. There's like old IT and probably modern IT. There's probably, you know, better words for it. But the old IT was basically like, we did a bake-off between some vendors, we're buying this stuff, and now it's getting deployed, and maybe you'll email out the company, say, hey, guess what, new software is going to be on your computers, you know, <laughs> if, it, if it breaks, you know, here's how you reach us, or something like that, right? But whereas I think going forward, there's a little bit more expectation that you're working with the company as clients and consumers and stakeholders, and in partnership solving problems while not adding friction, simple stuff, right? Like, you know, making sure that, you know, your authentication isn't causing a lot of pain, right? Or using the wrong system that that conflicts with the user base tech stack, or it, it, there's infinite amount of examples, you know, something simple, like one that sticks out is the pain by putting the wrong type of like antivirus software on developer laptops. It's such an, a simplistic problem. But if left, you could really go two different paths on that, right? You could take in the IT department and they could sort of just demand that this is the way it's going to be. And the devs will either, you know, have to figure out ways around it or how to cleverly uninstall it. <laughs> or they'll, you know, maybe they'll ask for larger machines, more memory or whatnot. E either way, it's causing pain, right? So, so there's like that direction. Or you can go the, the other direction where I like to encourage and, and we try to do at Weedmaps where it's, you know, have an active conversation like, hey, there's this piece of software. It's very painful. It's causing these issues. Do you think you guys can you know, solve that? Right. And then have the IT team go and and take more of a customer service oriented <laughs> approach and go and try to solve that in a manner that works for, for all parties. Right. You still get to be the main nucleus of it. You still get to be compliant and all that. But maybe there's a, an offering that works for everyone a little bit better. It's really kind of the different. I've heard other people describe it as, you know, kind of the old way of doing it, like you said, is command and control from an IT perspective. And the new way of doing it is more of a collaborative, you know, enabler, IT as an enabler of the business. It, it resonates with me a lot. Having IT and, and technology, just the, the, the whole technology org as a, as a whole, viewing them as a strategic weapon for the company. Mm -hmm. Yep. You can be very proactive in that enablement type stuff to make a difference versus sort of like waiting for tickets to come in or whatnot. You know, so especially now where 
there's so many key factors. You know, the world's changed so much in the last couple of years where something as simple as, you know, keeping all of your employees happy via the tech is very top of mind. You definitely don't want you know, systems or some sort of burden to come come out of not just IT, but any of the technical organizations that is going to cause, you know, pain for the employee base, especially when everyone in the planet is, you know, scrambling to try to get top talent right now. I think that is especially right now. It's, it's interesting, actually, because I feel like in the last couple of years, really, honestly, with COVID, there was first it was IT in the spotlight of having to move everyone to work remotely. And that was for the first time in a long time, I think people gave credit to IT in March of 2020 when some companies were set up for it, some companies weren't. Either way, once IT had to step in and make it happen, they got credit. Now you fast forward and we're in the, to your point, everyone's scrambling for talent. And actually, I think IT is going to start getting credit for putting together a technology stack and program that makes it attractive to work at that company. I, I've actually heard people who have come left better cloud and come back and said just the tech stack and the ability to use the technologies that they want to use was a huge driving, was one of the driving factors. I don't think you would have ever heard that 10 years ago. It's very akin to sort of the DevOps movement when that, you know, if you remember that era when it was kind of like huge divide and a wall in between operations and engineering. Yep. We had to be very, very deliberate to change the culture and change all of the foundation of the system to take everyone into account. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, the early stages of sort of like the SREs and, and site reliability engineering and all that and developer advocacy. There was a lot of attention put on ensuring that the tool chain and the CI pipeline and all of the, the internal products and services that product development teams needed to get stuff into production, like that tool chain and every and all of the software related to that and the processes and the access restrictions and all that, it was a really negative sort of like thing until the DevOps world came around and, and sort of changed it into that enabler. And it was sort of like, instead of being the sort of traffic cop and the, and the, the team that tells you, no, you can't log in or you can't have a server or you can't have access or whatever it is, you know, it, it became, we, we basically flipped the script and it was sort of like your, your mission in life is to make the product development team faster, more efficient, more nimble and happier, right? And it was the first time, you know, at least in my career, <laughs> when you would have an MPS score, uh, you know, as one of your metrics as a as a technologist, internal MPS score at it. You know, it's it's the same type of thing that that's happening now. It's kind of like that, right? It's it's you know now with everyone being you know remote or distributed across the planet, and now with the the world's expectation is everything just works and it needs to be pretty seamless. You have to package up the services and the software to where it's not just user friendly, but it has to be robust. It, it, it just has to work, right? And, and that's a tall order. The analogy is so good to uh, DevOps, probably like early 2010, 11, 12, that time frame, And that same, that, like you're talking about becoming the enabler, having the internal NPS. I mean, I've I've started seeing, you know, in, in some companies, they're changing the actual name of the IT team to employee experience, 
colleague experience, workplace, you know, like they're, they're starting to think about the role in this way that you're saying, which is very synonymous. I've, I've been saying that for a while. It's very synonymous with the DevOps change and paradigm shifts that come with that and the impact. I mean, think about, think about the way we do development today, the job, the focus on the productivity of an engineer. And that's the same, I, I believe, for IT now. I think that's the era we're in of how do you make the employee just that much, you know, given the cost of employees going up, given the the lack of talent, given all of those challenges that companies are facing, it's how do you how do you make them more productive, like you would an engineer? It's a great analogy. As long as teams are thinking about it proactively and being deliberate, there's a lot of there's easy wins, right? You know, it's like working. You know, when you start making sure that you get the best of breed laptop with really good peripherals, you know, and just they're not that much more when it comes to price, but it just feels different as a new employee when you start and you have really top-end equipment, you have a whole you know swag bag of things that show up and then easy software to navigate where it's kind of like click here to start and it you know it, it's ready to go. It knows who you are. You don't you don't have to fumble around I mean, I'm sure you remember the days of spending the first week trying to log into every system. No one knows anything. No one knows the passwords. You don't have log you don't have credentials. No one knows, you know, you get random wiki links here since you that are out of date. Just that whole onboarding experience. They're not hard things. They just have to be something that, you know, the company cares about and is deliberate about, you know, putting a little effort into making it, you know, that sort of really good experience for, you know, someone coming aboard. And then is, you know, making sure that it's not just for the, the newcomers, but making sure that you're, you know, have sort of like that, you know, white glove feel as an employee in the company. You mentioned, you know, you've built the team, sounds like quite a bit over the last three, four years that you've been there. What what are the skills that you're looking for? And maybe how have those skills changed in your career in terms of the types of people you're looking to bring on to your, let, let's focus on, you know, the CIO part of your job. What are the skills you look for for that team? Typically what, what I'm staffing for personally is, is the senior management team. And so, you know, I recently or recently being this year, have put together a, what I think is a, a world-class leadership team. I try to do functional leader leadership first, right? Like meaning, I'll use engineering as an example. You know, I try to make sure that the, the org design and the career la- ladders and levels within that particular org are known and, you know, sane. <laughs> and, and so put up front before any like hiring or staffing, like making sure that we're clear on the roles and the levels and what that actually means. And so we try to make sure that we have career ladders for every function. It's important because it has multiple tracks, you know, an IC type track, you go up from engineer, senior one, senior two, blah, 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 up to staff principal. And then as well, you have a management track. And, you know, so within those, getting that sort of baseline is important. That way you can look for the right type of skills for the right role and the right level. Because, you know, at the end of the day, like the concept of 10x people and just, you know, this like unicorn people and like things that that get thrown out a lot, it, it makes it impossible to staff anything with that, right? So I try to go into it with the, what's the most important thing that I need out of this particular level and this particular role? And so for me personally, I, I could talk a lot about the leadership stuff because I, I tend to do most of the hiring in the senior leadership ranks. But, you know, first and foremost, I look for people with some sort of large scale, super complex technology background. 
doesn't need to be current, doesn't need to be relevant for right now, but the amount of systems and systems thinking that you have to have to be able to build and maintain something of web scale notability with a lot of traffic, like it just level sets and grounds where that person's going to come from on most of their proposals or most of their solutioning or how they think about large tech problems. I try to do that as, as a sort of like a baseline. I don't really gravitate towards like certain tech skills or languages like that. That's almost irrelevant unless it's in the, in the IC that's an engineer that's going to be working on blah, blah, blah platform. Of course, we want to make sure that they have skills in that particular language or, or whatnot. But, you know, at the, at the more senior ranks, it's, it's more about, you know, the, the person's understanding of tech and how to do complex tech. It's their ability to build relationships and partnerships amongst their peers and their staff. At, at the end of the day, for me, they, they have to build trust within the organization. It's important that they have shown the ability to lead, grow, scale teams to do complex stuff. And, and just through those conversations, you can get a really good sense for their leadership capabilities. So you clearly, I mean, from hearing your background, you clearly have been successful from what it sounds like to me, because, you know, you've built trust, you've built relationships. You, you mentioned it a couple of times of how you aligned to the business needs, to the revenue, to all of that. And so I'd be curious to hear, how have you been able to build trust over your career? I mean, what, what's the, the method you use to do that or, or the mindset you use to do that? Because I, to me, that feels like every leader I've spoken to so far, there's something about building credibility, trust, reputation with the rest of the org, with their team, but mostly with the peers and leadership. Like, how do you do that? You know, number one is being authentic. When I'm talking to either my directs or team or really anyone, I try to be very open very transparent, meaning I try to tell it like it is, but not not from a you know kind of a, a jerk perspective. The the problem is the problem. You know, like normally we're solving problems and and you know objectify the problem. We we are not the problem. And so and then just being very collaborative and working with my team. And I rarely come in and sort of like solve a problem for them. They're way more competent in their domain than I am. And so what I try to do is make sure that they understand that I'm there to help them. Meaning like if they need resources, if they, whatever like I can provide to help bolster up and give them more leverage and more latitude to get the job done. Like I'm there for them. While I have things in the performance management category, like they'll have deliverables, they'll have deadlines, they'll have metrics and KPIs that we agree on, right? Like, you know, there's there's the transactional business end, but then there's the human end, right? And the human end is where I try to spend a, a fair amount of time, you know, in the collaboration and helping them get their goals achieved from my vantage point. It's a matter of spending that time in the trenches with them day in and day out. The amount of like interactions just increases trust, right? Like just, hey, you said this and you delivered this. Awesome. One more like notch in the trust belt, you know, like, and I, and I keep going down and, and, you know, I try to make sure that when tough things come up, that we're being candid about them. And I try to give feedback, like very direct, but direct, but coming from a place of care. I'm truly trying to help 
you know, not being direct because you can be direct and it, and it feels like you're being kind of a jerk. Avoid that at all costs. Being direct of like, hey, let's solve this problem. Or, hey, I see that you're having, you're struggling, you know, to do this. What if we got this for you? Like, have you thought about this? Or, you know, whatever it is, you just start to build that rapport. All of those interactions, I think trust is the result of that. What advice would you give yourself if you went back to, you know, you're in the Marine Corps, you're early days there, early in your career in IT, now knowing everything you know, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, that's a great great question. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of enjoy the process. I'm a go-getter. I like to move a mile a minute. I want to grow and I want to achieve things um, at a rate that's probably not uh, realistic. And, you know, I, I think sometimes that, you know, gets me frustrated. You know, old Justin telling young Justin, <laughs> hey, just relax. You know, it's going to take time. It's like, you know, starting going to the gym, right? You don't just say like, hey, where's my six pack abs? Like, it's going to take a minute and you'll get there. Just, you know, like enjoy the journey along with it's going to take time and just understand that. I think it would help those peaks and valleys that, that you get into. And, you know, everyone goes into those sort of like, why am I not progressing fast enough? Or why didn't we build this thing fast enough? And, you know, I, I don't know that the the frustration is adds value or any benefit to life other than losing hair and getting more gray. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely think, I think enjoy the journey has definitely been one that I've been, if someone asked me, I'd say the exact same thing, actually. You never feel like you've achieved, you know, you never feel... But but in reality, when you look back, <laughs> I mean, even you hear about your career to this point and all the different projects and different things you've worked on, but you're almost never, never satisfied. And then at some point you realize you never will be. <laughs> so the other thing I think is important or like can be very challenging for people to deal with is the sheer volume of things that you feel like you need to know is just overwhelming, meaning like the amount of tech and things that just keep coming nonstop, it, it's impossible to know everything, right? Or in every industry and, you know, every company and it, or whatever, there's just so much information out there. And there's an, there's an expectation, you know, especially the, the more senior you get that you're an expert in everything that can be mentally challenging. It's probably the opposite when you're very senior, <laughs> probably because now you're not even in the weeds of all the different things. <laughs> it, exactly. It's, it's a little bit more about like, you, you've got to focus on what's actually important and weed out the rest. Yeah. Like that's how I try to try to function. It's interesting where, you know, being in the cannabis industry at weed maps though, because it's, we don't really have the luxury of, of focus. I know that, that sounds a little odd, but the industry's so new and so you know nascent on a lot of the things that you would expect in a normal industry in terms of like the software that powers the industry that just don't exist in cannabis. So we find ourselves, you wake up one day and you have 19 product domains. And that is a lot of different domains to try to wrap your mind around at any given moment. I was taking notes as you were talking about your career, and it feels like you've been, in one way or another, kind of on the cutting edge in some way, shape, or form in terms of the technologies you've been deploying. I mean, from from the Marine Corps days to what you were doing at Shopzilla to even the transformation at Ticketmaster, you've been kind of at the forefront of cannabis. I mean, you've been at the forefront of industries or technologies if you had to summarize technology change in the last, since you've been working, what, what do you think the biggest changes? And then I've been 
curious. I've been asking a lot of leaders now recently, like, what do you think is the next thing to happen? Like, especially around workplace technology, maybe 10 years, 15 years down the road. Like, you know, you definitely have an interesting view since you were at an ASP, again, SaaS before it was called SaaS. And now SaaS has become the thing. And this is probably how we'll work for decades to come. But what's the biggest change? And what do you think will be the future of, of workplace technology? It's hard to nail it down to sort of like one one big change. I mean, the, it <laughs> yeah. feels like so, so much change has happened lately. You know, there's, there's a couple different like meta thoughts, I guess you could say with it. What one is the the power shift is really interesting, and and by power shift there might be a little bit softer way to phrase that, but technologists are starting to eat the world, you know, like and and so if you look at the, you know what's happening, great resignation and all that other kind of stuff right now, right? You're seeing it firsthand. I'm using air quotes. The talent shortage. In in some ways, it's not exactly a talent shortage. It's the technologists at large are now getting to choose what they want to do. That was not the case. You know, I, I, I never felt like that early career, mid career. I felt like there's a boss, there's a company, they're going to pay me X. I have to come to work and do exactly what they tell me to do. And I may have a little bit of influence here and there. Whereas I feel like now we've almost fully pivoted to a world where, you know, assuming that you have, you know, talent that you trust, where they're a little bit more in the, in the driver's seat and you're starting to see them driving in not just tech companies, but most companies, it's a huge, like fundamental shift. Uh, I don't know that we've put a name on it or (laughs) really talked about it at large, but you're seeing that you know tech employees and employees at large are starting to have the control. And so you'll start to see policies and work life operations at large start to shift to meet the demands and the needs of what our talent is telling us. Our talent is telling us a lot of things, right? Like flexible schedules and, and work hours, you know, is, is, is important, right? People, they don't want to feel ashamed for having to pick their kid up in school at a certain time or feel, you know, sort of shamed for missing a meeting to go to, you know, your, your, a kid's school event. Like these are becoming normal place now where we're learning to balance your work life and your life life, you know, all together. And I think it's starting to be, become an option because of the demand for top and high performing talent. So I think there's a lot of good that will will start to come out of the the shift in in everyone's work life from that. And and obviously it'll impact as well, like things that we deploy, you know, services that we deploy, right? Like meaning there was an era where no one wanted to pay for Zoom and the likes of it five years ago. It would be at the, you know, company level talking about like the budget, you know, restrictions and only limited to blah, 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 you know, that kind of thing where now that's not even a conversation. You know, it's more about, what more can we do? What's the best one that everyone really likes and the employees will be happy with, right? And gives them the most mobility and the most flexibility, right? It's less of a budget conversation. And the, the budget conversation is going to be, you know, if you don't get enough talent, you can't build the products and services and you won't have revenue to then support, <laughs> to support any of it. So, you know, it, it just feels like to me, like the, the biggest shift overall is, is that 
change in position of where the technologists, you know, fit in the, the life cycle of a company now. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think it's forced a lot of good changes, you know, to your point. And, and it's going to be interesting to see how this shakes out over the next couple of years, because the talent shortage, if you will, given that every company, you said it before, it's not just software companies. I mean, every company is a software company kind of at this point. And so it's the town, ta- there's just not enough. There's not enough people who know how to do this. It's it's going to be really interesting to see how we close that gap. I, I think we're going to start seeing more people open the aperture in terms of where they go get their talent from and how much they're spending training the talent. And it's going to be an interesting period of time now coming up. Justin, this was this was awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your story. I think people are going to love it. And um, congrats on on all the success. And and I hope to stay in touch. Yeah, thank you so much. It was it was great chatting with you. Thanks again to Justin for joining me in today's episode. And thanks to you for listening to the entire episode all the way through. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to SaaS Ops Leaders with David Pletus on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you want to learn more about SASOPS, please visit us at sasops.com.